Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you're in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Hey guys, welcome back. <sighs> Hopefully you've recovered from part two. I haven't. That was that was uh super rough. fucking rough. Yeah. Um this one should not be that bad. God, so, I hope not. No. no wonder you've been so fucking depressed. <clears throat> yeah, this right? is rough. Mm-hmm. So when we ended part two, we were talking about how people's temple had basically morphed into a cult from a church. Um, and we use that ter- term loosely, church. Yeah. And what a piece of shit Jim Jones is. So, you know what? Let's just go. It's Let's jump in. Yeah, please. So, in March of 1974, after coming to an agreement with the Guyanese government to a five-year, 3,000-acre lease in their country, Jim sent followers to Guyana to start clearing the acreage and start building the Promised Land, a.k.a. Jonestown. Jim spent most of the summer of 1975 telling temple members of the Promised Land. So, Guyana is a country located on South America's North Atlantic coast. It's well known for its dense rainforest. Guyana shares a border with Venezuela. I know this isn't a geography podcast, but for our visual learners out there, if you're looking at a map of South America, Guyana is immediately to the right of Venezuela. It's one of the least densely populated countries on Earth, which is likely why Jim Jones chose this as the location for Jonestown, his eventual quote-unquote commune or community. Another likely reason Jim chose Guyana is the fact that Guyana is a socialist country with non-extradition status with the U.S. Yep. (laughs) Which means that a person suspected of or convicted of a crime in the U.S., but who made it to Guyana— cannot be apprehended and forced to return to the U.S. to face trial or punishment. So, give me a—I took two years of Spanish in mm-hmm. high school, and, like, part of learning the language, mm-hmm. we learned shit like this. Mm-hmm. And I do not remember the country, Guyana. It's tiny. Like, we had to learn—and, I mean, in world geography, too, we had to learn mm-hmm. the countries and the capitals— Right. I don't fucking remember. (laughs) Yeah, it's really small. Let me see. I'll show you. Yeah, so it's like super, super, super tiny. Like, I mean, Brazil is huge. You have a map up? Yeah. It's super tiny. Like, I mean, even, like, look at Venezuela. Like, you see Venezuela? Yeah. And then Guyana's tiny. So... That's why he chose it, you know. So, Guyana was the only English-speaking country in South America, which is another big reason why Jim Jones chose it for his settlement. 
According to a book entitled Guyana Guide that Debbie referenced in her book Seductive Poison, Guyana, South, uh, South America, formerly British Guyana, became independent in 1966. She became a republic with the British Commonwealth in 1970. Her largest racial groups are East Indians, 300,000, then Negroes, descendants of African slaves, 250,000, and the remainder being Chinese, Portuguese, other Europeans, and the indigenous Amerindians. Guyana is a country for serious adventurers only and is not to be attempted lightly. The wild beauty of its jungle interior is visited at a price of rigorous, sometimes dangerous, effort. Few of Guyana's 780,000 residents venture into the jungle interior. Those who do contend with tropical heat and humidity, 63 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit, and rainfall of 105 inches annually, tropical insects, and the risk of malaria. Romantic? Exciting? Wild? Yes. But one must remember that a trip to Guyana is no fool's holiday. Certain precautions should be taken while traveling here. So, that book was basically just saying that, it like, it's basically just the jungle. Right. So, so you know, I know why Jim chose it, but I don't think he realized just how hard it was going to be to actually get, like, the settlement set up. Yeah. Because they had to clear the land, try to plant crops, and then they learned that a lot of times the soil was not suitable for crops, right. so then they had issues with that. It was just, it was a lot. So Debbie found this book on the coffee table of the house that People's Temple had in Georgetown, which is Guyana's capital. So in addition to Jonestown, they had, like, a house, I think it was, like, La Mala Gardens or something was what they called it. So it was like kind of like the headquarters in the capital. Members wishing to join Jonestown usually stayed at the house in Georgetown for a day or so until they could be transported to Jonestown via plane or boat. Reading this concerned Debbie. Jonestown had been described as a paradise, but the description of the Guyanese jungle in the book sounded like anything but a paradise. It wouldn't be long until Debbie would learn that everything she thought was true about Jonestown was just a huge lie. Because Jim Jones is a fraud. <laughs> so, I just wanted to kind of include a little bit about Guyana and, like, where they were headed. But now I'm going to talk about why Jim Jones ultimately moved his whole congregation there. So Aside from the extradition stuff. Yeah. Well, like, why he decided... Because... He basically up, up and decided to leave overnight, like him personally. He had a few people there, and he had started moving some of his mm -hmm. followers there. But something happened that made him okay. decide he needed to get the fuck out of the U.S. So two weeks after Debbie was confronted and forced to confess to begging father for sex in front of everyone, he called her to his quarters. When Debbie walked into the room, she noted that Jim was surrounded by his most trusted lieutenants. Jim was also surrounded by a bunch of files. Jim had found out that a reporter named Marshall Kilduff was working on a story about People's Temple and all the atrocities that Jim Jones had been committing against his congregation. This was clearly a threat to Jim, so he put his plan to move the People's Temple out of the U.S. into motion. Jim instructed Debbie to obtain a passport the following day because she would be taking a trip to handle some business for Jim soon. Three weeks later, Debbie was sent on her first of many trips for the temple. 
Debbie would travel to various foreign countries like Panama, Switzerland, England, just to name a few, with other women who were closest to Jim. The point of these trips was basically for the women to smuggle temple funds out of the U.S. and deposit them into foreign bank accounts to shield the money from seizure should the temple be investigated. Debbie and the others would tape thousands of dollars to their bodies in money belts sewn into clothing. They even hid money in Tampax and Kotex boxes, correctly assuming that TSA agents would be too embarrassed to touch these. This is how the temple was able to deposit millions into offshore accounts. We'll get into how much was recovered from these accounts, I think, at the end of part four. So the New West, which is a magazine, expose is basically what prompted the People's Temple move to Guyana. Jim had agreed to an interview with Marshall Kilduff after he found out about the report or that he was working on a report. The article was not likely to paint the People's Temple and its leader in a favorable light. Jim was already paranoid, but the impending expose that Kildoff was writing just heightened his paranoia to new levels. Jim assigned a couple of members to follow Kildoff and then pick through his garbage to see if there was anything they could use to blackmail him into not publishing the article. (laughs) Jim wanted his entire congregation out of the U.S. and living in Jonestown before Kildoff's expose went public. Jim knew that this story was not going to go over well with the general public, and he feared that once the story was published, the authorities would not allow People's Temple members to leave the country. So Jim began pushing for a mass exodus from California to Jonestown in Guyana. In July 1977, Rosalie Wright, the editor of New West magazine, phoned the People's Temple headquarters in San Francisco to read Jim the article that was scheduled for August 1st, 1977 publication. After being read the article via phone in its entirety, Jim knew time was running out. He decided the rest of his most trusted advisors, his family, and himself were leaving for Jonestown that night. I was able to find this article, and I can see why Jim was frightened. You found the expose? Oh, yeah. Yes. The article was titled, Inside People's Temple, and was written by Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy and boasted the following headline, quote, Jim Jones is one of the state's most politically potent leaders, but who is he and what is going on behind his church's locked doors, end quote. The article described suspicious circumstances surrounding the mysterious church. For example, according to the article, the temple included two sets of locked doors, guards patrolling the aisles during services, and a history of not allowing passersby to drop in unannounced during Sunday morning services. Well, that seems questionable. You had to actually be a member to Yeah, attend. like, and the doors were locked while they were having services. That's fucking weird. Yes. The authors of the article were approached by 10 ex-members of People's Temple who wanted to speak out about what they experienced in their time as part of Jim Jones's church. The portraits these ex-members painted were anything but flattering. All of them discussed fucked up things that took place in the church, including enduring public punishments and humiliations for minor infractions, being forced to turn over property while being pressured to give all of their earnings to the temple, and being threatened if they even thought about leaving the temple, just to name a few. The public punishment started as what Jim called catharsis. During these, Jim would point out a member who he felt had wronged him or disobeyed a temple rule 
and force them to stand in the middle of the floor. Other members of the church were then encouraged to criticize, humiliate, and eventually physically assault the person who was accused. By 1975, the catharsis sessions shifted to include physical beatings with a belt or a large wooden paddle and eventually evolved into boxing matches where the accused was sometimes knocked the fuck out by other members selected by Jim himself to fight them. What is this, fight club? Like, what? There was, I think the article even mentioned like a time when there was like upwards of like a hundred members. I don't know what the fuck they did. They did some, or I'm sorry, I think they weren't paying enough attention in church or something. And he paddled all 100 of them, Mm -hmm. like in a line. Ain't nobody paddling me unless I want them to paddle me. Retweet. Period. So what type of behavior would warrant paddling? Oh, you know, things like not being, quote, attentive enough during gym sermons. Bruh, what? Elmer and Deanna Myrtle, former members of the temple, recalled a time when their 16-year-old daughter, Linda, was accused by Jim of being a lesbian because she hugged and kissed a female friend that she hadn't seen in a long time. The murders watched in absolute horror as their daughter was disciplined up to 75 times with the wooden paddle. Myrtle told New West, quote, she was beaten so severely that the kid said her butt looked like hamburger, end quote. Wow. Absolutely fucking not. What the fuck? And um, I think Linda's, they interviewed Linda too, and she was like, yeah, I couldn't like, I basically couldn't sit down for like a week. I bet. Yeah. 75 times with a wooden paddle? What? Temple members were pressured into signing over all of their money and property to the church so that they could live communally in Temple-owned housing. New West writers searched records at the Mendocino County Recorder's Office and noted that approximately 30 pieces of property had been transferred from members to the Temple during the period of 1968 to 1976. 30 pieces of property. Homes, land, whatever, was all transferred to the church. Wow. Most of these were recorded as gifts. Oh, I'm fucking sure. Yeah. Although several of these gifts were signed or recorded incorrectly. Like um, Grace and Tim Stowen signed over their house, um, for example. And Grace told, at this point, Grace had left. She got enough. She defected. She left the people's temple, but Tim was still in. And when Grace left, they wouldn't allow her to take her son with her. I was about to ask. Mm Mm-hmm. So her son was with Jim, and then eventually, I didn't go super into it, but eventually, Jim sent um, John Victor to Guyana to make it harder for Grace to get custody of him. Mm-hmm. Custody of him. But um, yeah, Grace told New West that the um, the documents that were like signed and notarized by her supposedly the day they were. supposed allegedly notarized according to the documents she wasn't even in town like she was in new york for something for the temple so like they were all you know forged and or like you know because with the notary you're supposed to sign in their presence right and that was impossible because she wasn't there the temple also required members to submit at least 25 percent of their earnings to the church so they've upped it Uh uh-huh 
If members couldn't meet this, they would be required to bake cakes to sell after Sunday services, perform odd jobs around the temple locations for free, or like Larry, get a second job on the weekend, or hand over their jewelry, fur coats, anything of value. Jim kept his members in a constant state of fear of repercussions if they decided to leave the temple. Mickey Touche told New West, quote, At one point, we had been told that any college student who was going to leave the church would be killed. Not by Jones, but by some of his followers, end quote. So, you know, that kind of explains, like, why they were scared. To, they were terrified right. to leave. So, um, also, because they were trying to be or bring about socialism, you know, Jim was like, you don't need all these bougie, you know, um, like a, you don't, jewelry, yeah. materialistic things. So they would either like pawn it or sell it for money or um, they would, I think they own thrift stores. So they would like sell it in mm-hmm. the thrift store to make money. But um, one lady said they took like her best watch. Like, well, regardless, like some people have stuff that may have sentimental value. Mm-hmm. Like even though it is valuable, but it's also got sentimental right. value Inheritance. Like, inherited items. Right. So, after speaking to these disgruntled ex-members, the obvious question for the New West writers was this. Why did some of them remain members long after they became disenchanted with Jones's methods and even fearful of him and his bodyguards? Members all shared the same reasoning. They were terrified of retribution, and they feared that their stories wouldn't be believed if they left and tried to, you know, come out and talk about it. Most members had nothing to go back to, even if they did left. Even if they did left. Oh, my God. (laughs) Most members had nothing to go back to, even if they did decide to leave. For example, the murders... The Bitch! I think that's the second time you said that. Oh, I said the murders? The the myrtles? I I thought maybe I heard it, and then you just said it again. I was like, oh, then she definitely said it. Oh, fuck. Oh, well. Oh, well. The Myrtles stayed in the church more than a year after their daughter was publicly beaten. They explained, quote, we had nothing on the outside to get started in. We had given the church all our money. We had given all our property. We had given up our jobs, end quote. Like, (laughs) that's so sad. Like, so I can understand. When you put it in that context, I guess I can understand, like, not. This really reminds me, not that it's even remotely close. It reminds me of my ex-stepdad, like. Mm-hmm. The way, like... So, mom, his controlling and... And, like, my mom, like, moved her check into his account like, mm-hmm. when they got together and then, like, closed her account and then, like... He would withhold stuff from her well, money? Well, like, he was paying her bills. Uh-huh. I mean, his bills were her money. I mean, yeah. they lived yeah. together or whatever, but, like... He, right. Well, he didn't work. Mm-mm. Like, he owned a mechanic shop, but, like... And then, like, when she had the kids, she stopped working. Mm-hmm. So then, like... Making it physically and financially impossible for her to leave. So then, yeah, yeah it was it was rough. Like yeah. I had to open a bank account for her and shit. Yeah, no, I I know you said like it's not even remotely the same thing, but the helplessness, the yeah, like of- in the um, like the situations are similar because the, power the same. It's it's all abusive, you yeah. know, whether it's in the form of a cult or in the form of a relationship. It's still all about the control and the power and having someone. Basically, rely on you. Yep. Like, no, that is a good kind of analogy, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, this article (laughs) 
was not great for him. Um, the article wrapped up by explaining several reasons why Jim Jones should be investigated. They listed several, but I'll just mention a couple. Um, the property that was essentially stolen from temple members, like coerced, like coercion, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the temple selling off several of the temple sold off several of their properties, like the churches and stuff, which pointed towards a mass exodus of Jones' remaining followers. So the authors were basically like, if they're like they sold the San Francisco church um, or the LA church, one of the two, either what they had sold one and the other one was up for sale. Mm-hmm. So they were like, he's leaving. Like he's, right. and then you're not going to be able to get to them. Right. So by the date the article was published, August 1st, 1977, Jones himself had been in Guyana for three weeks. The end of the article stated, quote, the story of Jim Jones and his people's temple is not over. In fact, it has only begun to be told, end quote. They could not have been more right. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't even know the half of it. You know, they I don't they didn't know all the stuff that we talked about last episode, which was the really horrific stuff. Right. You know. So once Jim had arrived in Guyana, he immediately contacted Debbie and his other trusted members still in the US. Cause he took a lot of his like lieutenants with him, like his most trusted people with him, but he did he had to leave a few in the US to wrap up things. Mm-hmm. So he started demanding more supplies, food, clothing, and Bibles. But by the end of July 1977, Jim's messages began to sound more frantic and erratic. He was telling Debbie that the Guyanese government had turned against them and the members in Jonestown would need to make a stand. So Jim ordered that they send more Bibles to Jonestown. But Debbie was in the radio room because, like, they had a radio system, mm-hmm. like a long-distance um, radio. And... Debbie was in the radio room with, I think the girl's name was Terry. And Terry was like, what the fuck? Like, why is he saying he needs Bibles? Like, well, he's saying they need to protect themselves. Why is he saying they need more Bibles? And Debbie froze because she said he meant guns by Bibles. Like, Debbie figured it out. But he couldn't say, send us guns on the transmission just in case anybody was listening. Right. Like, what the fuck? Shortly after Jim left for Guyana, Debbie received personal news that was devastating. Her mother, Lisa, who at this point was a member of the People's Temple and had divorced their father, by the way, because he wouldn't join, Mm -hmm. um, was diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer and ended up having her entire right lung removed in August 1977. Jesus. The surgery was a success. However, the bad news continued. The cancer had metastasized. Did I say that right? Yeah. And spread into Lisa's other lymph nodes. Lisa would need aggressive treatment, but this treatment only had a 50% chance of actually working, and it would make Lisa really sick, sicker than she already was. So Debbie would spend the next couple months making her mother as comfortable as possible while also assisting Jim in any way possible from the U.S. Debbie was waiting to hear from Jim that she and Lisa could go to Jonestown to be with him. Debbie received news the day before Thanksgiving, 1977, that Jim wanted her and her mother to come to Jonestown. Jim told Debbie, quote, Lisa is strong. Uh, Jim told Debbie, quote, Lisa is strong enough to travel and she needs to be with me now. Plan to bring her and help her settle in. I think you would feel more comfortable knowing she is happy. 
Plan to stay two months, then you can return to your duties there, and Robbie can come here and visit her family. Consider yourself on bi-monthly schedule. By the way, Debbie, Shanda wanted you to know that you'll be living with her, and let Lisa know that my mother is exceptionally vigorous and looks forward to her company and their long walks together, end quote. Because Lisa had become friends with Jim's mom Mm -hmm. at some point. But what Lisa and Debbie didn't know is that Jim's mom had died in Jonestown, like, before this. And he's telling her, oh, my mom, you know, tell your mom that my mom can't wait to to see her. And she was already dead. Wow. So, just another manipulation. Debbie obtained a release from Lisa's doctor so that she can make the trip to Guyana. Debbie requested privately that the doctor not tell Lisa her cancer had metastasized. Finally, on December 6, 1977, Debbie and Lisa left California and traveled to New York, the first step on their trek to the Promised Land. So as I said before, Jonestown was located in the middle of the dense jungle. There was literally no escape for People's Temple members who decided to join Jim Jones there. Conditions in Jonestown were less than ideal and <sighs> conditions in Jonestown were less than ideal and were certainly not the quote-unquote utopia or quote-unquote promised land. Jim Jones promised followers. One former People's Temple member who lived in Jonestown for a while told the FBI that living conditions were terrible from the day he arrived. He reported that he lived in a 12 by 20 foot wooden building with 14 other people. Jesus. This building was set up like a barracks. He continued that the food was horrible and was typically limited to rice and gravy. Living conditions only improved for Jonestown settlers on the rare occasion when they had visitors. Because he wanted to put on a show, you know, that or make it seem like it wasn't that bad there. Shorter work hours and better food would only last for the length of the visitor's stay, though. Jones was putting on a show, sometimes literally, complete with music and dancing, trying to convince visitors that Jonestown was this amazing family when in reality it was anything but. Jones would send homemade videos back to the to his church in an effort to convince congregants to come to Jonestown in Guyana. But these movies were just a highlight reel, only showing the parts of Jonestown that Jim wanted people to see. But people who actually made the trip to Guyana often found Jones had lied to them. All the letters sent back to the states from Jonestown described a paradise full of happiness and relief that everyone could finally live free and be safe from the corruption of capitalism. It wouldn't be until much later that everyone would learn these letters were dictated by Jim or his closest confidants. There was no way a letter depicting Jonestown as anything but an absolute dream was going to make it back to the U.S. And on, um, I think it was in the Jonestown, Truth and Lies, Jonestown, Paradise Lost documentary. It's on Hulu. Um, They showed, like, one of the videos that Jim sent back, and you can see... Like banana, like a big bunch of banana, a couple bunches of bananas, like hanging behind him. But it was like in the pavilion. He went and bought those. <gasps> yeah, so he was like trying to make people think that there was they food. were like being successful, and they weren't. Like I said, they were having issues growing, growing food. food. Yeah. When Debbie and her mother arrived in Guyana, Debbie sensed almost immediately that something wasn't right. Their passports were taken from them as soon as they arrived. <sighs> Debbie thought this was strange at first, but she trusted that there was a good reason for it and didn't push the issue. Apparently, Jones did this to everyone who arrived in Jonestown. He did let a few members leave Jonestown, but not often and not without a threat. 
According to The Road to Jonestown, The Road to People's Temple, Yolanda Crawford convinced Jim to allow her, her mother, and her husband to leave Jonestown and return to the U.S. in the summer of 1977. However, Crawford recalled this came with restrictions. Quote, I was forced to promise Jones that I would never speak against the church and that if I did, I would lose his protection and be stabbed in the back. Furthermore, Jim Jones ordered me to sign a number of self-incriminating papers, including that I was against the government of Guyana. Even before leaving the U.S. for Guyana, I was ordered to fabricate a story and sign it stating that I had killed someone and threw the body in the ocean. I was told that if I ever caused Jim Jones trouble, he would give the statement to police. End quote. What the hell? After staying in Georgetown, the capital of Guyana, for a little over a week, Debbie and Lisa finally received word that they would be headed to Jonestown. Debbie and Lisa set out to Jonestown via a tugboat. In all, the trip would take 24 hours. On a boat. Ew. (laughs) Debbie recalled in her book that this was not a pleasant trip, and she spent most of the boat ride violently ill. When she finally arrived in Jonestown, she was covered with seawater and vomit. Just before docking, the captain of the boat addressed all the passengers and demanded that any correspondence be handed over to him prior to disembarking the ship. Debbie handed over the stack of notes she had collected from families and friends in California for their loved ones in Jonestown. The letters were reviewed by the quote-unquote clearing committee prior to being delivered to the intended recipient, if they were delivered at all. This is just another example of how Jim controlled the narrative and kept his followers complacent. Once the boat arrived at Port Kaituma, Debbie, Lisa, and the other newcomers loaded into a flatbed truck that would take them the last leg of the trip to Jonestown, which was another two hours. Oh, my God. When the truck grew, grew close to Jonestown, Debbie was taken aback by what she saw. This was definitely not the paradise that Jim had promised. Surely there had been a mistake. Unfortunately, the only mistake was trusting Jim in anything that he said. In her book, Debbie recalled her first impression of Jonestown. Quote, when we reached the lights, the dreamy haze vanished. I spied poles with light bulbs swinging from them. There were primitive structures scattered about. Many were just canvas tents with open sides. I looked around and saw only dark green military tents interspersed with wood huts. End quote. Debbie noticed the people in Jonestown looked different, too. Quote, they looked intense, distraught, perhaps tormented. No one smiled at us as we piled out of the truck. Our excitement dissipated as some of our Jonestown brethren approached. I could see in their eyes that they had lost hope, end quote. Imagine that, like, you're, you're literally getting to this place that's supposed to be, like, this amazing, like, utopia, paradise, mm-hmm. and that's what you see. And then you just look at the faces of the people who've been there for a long time, and you just know, like, De- I fucked defeat, up. Defeat, yeah. Yeah. Upon arriving at the camp, newcomers were directed to a tent area where the greeting committee politely addressed each person with a friendly, welcome to Jonestown. All trunks and bags were immediately searched by the greeting committee, and most personal belongings were confiscated. After all of her personal effects had been stripped from her, Debbie was handed four t-shirts, four pairs of socks, a toothbrush, toothpaste, four pairs of underwear, and a bar of soap. And I'm assuming shorts, but she didn't say that. Yeah, I'm assuming shorts too, but she did or pants, but she didn't say that. But everyone was too scared to ask where their items were being taken to. They would only learn later that their personal things were now the property of Jonestown, the commune. 
These items were stored in a shed, and requisition forms and proof of need were required to access them. Oh, my them. God. With the new items and articles of clothing she had been handed, Debbie was escorted by a guide to her assigned cabin, which was down the hill from the main pavilion. It was a dank, dingy, and dark one-room cabin that included 12 bunk beds stacked close together. Debbie learned a valuable lesson on one of her first nights in her cabin. Never leave any skin exposed while you're sleeping because if you do, the mosquitoes will absolutely tear you up. Something we down here in Louisiana know all too well. Yeah. Debbie made this mistake once and ended up with a foot full of irritated, red, itchy bites. To make matters worse, she had to shove that itchy foot into an uncomfortable work boot for her first day working in the sugarcane patch. Debbie showed up for breakfast and immediately felt a wave of nausea coming over her as the pungent smells from the kitchen assaulted her nostrils. Debbie asked her work crew leader, a young man named Lee, what the smell was, and he told her it was just iodine and other things they add to the food to protect them from the jungle plagues. What the fuck? He assured Debbie that she would get used to it. Despite Lee's attempt to reassure her, Debbie wasn't at all hopeful. Debbie got in line and accepted her breakfast, a thick slice of cassava bread with brown syrup on it and some rice. According to a quick Google search, cassava bread is a good alternative for individuals with gluten sensitivities or allergies, and it's low in calories, fat, and sugar. Although I'm 99% sure the main reason Jim chose to use cassava flour was because it was likely the cheapest thing he could get his hands on. Huh? I've had like cassava chips, cassava Is it good? No, it's awful. Awful. There was also a cassava flour uh, mill close to Jonestown, so that's probably... That's probably why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like an alternative to, like... Flour. Flour, yeah. Before she could even sit down, Debbie watched in horror as two beetles dive-bombed and landed right on her breakfast, unable to free themselves from the sticky syrup. Ew. Horrified and disgusted, Debbie searched for a garbage can to toss her now-ruined breakfast. But Lee stopped her and told her that wasting food in Jonestown wasn't allowed because it takes too long to find, to find, plant, grow, then cook. He instructed Debbie to just pick the bugs out. Debbie couldn't bring herself to do that, so she offered her uneaten breakfast to Lee. He tried to convince Debbie that she needed to eat because it would be a long day in the field, but she refused. Lee snatched her breakfast and, rolling his eyes, ate the bread. Beetle shit and all. Then warned Debbie, quote, life ain't going to be easy for you here, end quote. Debbie had no idea just how hard it would be, but she quickly found out. Eventually, Debbie learned to scarf down whatever food was offered, regardless of how disgusting it was. Meals in Jonestown typically consisted of rice with cassava bread topped with syrup for breakfast, rice water soup for lunch, and rice and beans for dinner. On Sundays, members were given a treat, an egg and a cookie. Vegetables were served two or three times a week. But Jim, blaming problems with his blood sugar, ate separately and like a king because his dinners regularly included meat. Like, so he was eating just fine. Mm -hmm. Again, the rules don't apply to him. Following breakfast, Debbie and her crew walked a few miles down the dusty jungle road to the sugarcane field. The workday started around 7 a.m. and didn't end until 6 p.m. Debbie had a rude awakening coming. She was not used to manual labor at all, but she was introduced quickly in Jonestown. Debbie learned quickly from Lee what sugarcane stalks were weeds and which ones were food. She asked him if she could taste one, and he immediately told her absolutely not, 
and explained that the food in Jonestown is shared with everyone, and if she ever took a bite, it would be considered stealing, and she would be severely punished and end up on the learning crew. The learning crew is a group Father Jim assigned members to when he felt they had committed some slight and had to be quote-unquote re-educated. Examples of offenses that would land you on the learning crew were not following orders, complaining, or not working fast enough, just to name a few. If you were placed on the learning crew, you were required to do your work double time, so they were required to run to each work site where they would be watched carefully by armed guards. Additionally, learning crew members were forbidden from speaking to anyone, like even amongst themselves. They also ate separately and were required to sleep in a designated quote-unquote punishment dorm. The learning crew weren't the only people subjected to being watched by guards, though. All the work crews were watched by guards. In addition to the watchful eye of the guards, members had to worry about their fellow crewmates as well. Father instructed everyone that they are responsible for reporting any quote-unquote infractions that they witness their crewmates commit. If someone writes up an incident but no one else on the crew reports it, the entire work crew would be placed on the learning crew. This was Jim's way to ensure that everyone writes everything up by the end of each day. Like, what the fuck? Essentially, everybody was ratting. <laughs> Throwing it back there. Right. The learning crew was super intense, and the ABC documentary gave just one of many examples. One time, two teenagers attempted to run away. When they were caught and returned, Jim Jones put them on a work crew where they worked 16-hour days. One of the teens, named Tom Bogue, who's now a grown man, told documentarians that his friend was so exhausted and so badly in need of a break that he asked his friend to smash his thumb with a sledgehammer also he could get a small break. Wow. Yeah. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. A Reveille. Is that how you say that? Reveille? I don't know. It's like the trumpets. Like, dun, 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 dun. you know what I'm talking about? Like, like in the army movies, like the bugle. You know what I'm talking about? Are we finna see? There's two different pronunciations. This is British. Reveille. Reveille. This is American. Reveille. Hmm. No, I meant the sound. No, you said, is that how you say it? Oh, yeah, but can we play the sound? Oh, I'm not playing that. Hang on. Let me find it. Reveille is how you would say it, I guess. Here, let's see. I'm going to play it. So, yeah, that would sound over the Jonestown PA system every morning at 6 a.m. What a wake-up call, huh? Right. The crews often worked all day from 7 a.m. to at least 6 p.m., six days a week. The only quote-unquote free time they had was half a day on Sundays because they worked from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. Members got one hour for lunch. The daily physical labor in the hot South American jungle was grueling. However, it was much less terrifying than what Jim Jones would subject his loyal followers to each and every night. Lights Out was officially at 11 p.m., but Jones often rambled well into the night, sometimes until 2 or 3 a.m. Following dinner every night, mandatory meetings were held in the pavilion, during which Jim would sit on his lawn chair on the stage, his own makeshift throne, and read newspapers of current events, preach, ramble on about nothing, and on the worst nights, confront members publicly. Debbie recalled one particularly exhausting night in an emergency meeting 
When she sat in her typical spot next to Jim's son, Stephen, and fighting the urge to fall asleep from sheer exhaustion. These meetings typically would last until the early morning hours, and falling asleep during one was obviously forbidden. As Debbie was biting her cheek to keep herself awake, she heard a rustling sound from somewhere in the pavilion, and fear struck her because she knew what it meant. Someone had fallen asleep and must have fallen from the bench, and they would be held to pay. Debbie recalled the following shit show. She has actual quotes, so I'm assuming she may have based it off of the tapes that have been recovered from Jonestown because Jim always recorded his nightly sermons. Jim's loud voice boomed over the loudspeaker because he had like a mic too. Uh-huh. Quote, stand. Are you not afraid? Do you believe that you are different from the rest of us? Speak up and explain yourself. End quote. A 60-year-old father of five named Charlie stood up and began to apologize profusely as he brushed the dirt from his pants. He was immediately cut off by shouting from the other members. The crowd was angry because Jim was furious and everyone knew this never led to anything good. Jim continued berating the old man, quote, So you think falling asleep during during an emergency meeting is easy? Let's see how you fare with this. Put the snake around his neck, end quote. Suddenly, one of the guards carried a cage into the middle of the pavilion and opened the door. The cage contained a 10-foot boa constrictor. As the guard was about to grab the snake to place it around Charlie's neck, Jim stopped him. Quote, no, wait, get Charlie's son to do it. I want Nick to put the snake around his daddy's neck, end quote. The pavilion was suddenly eerily silent. Nick was one of Jim's most trusted guards in the camp. Charlie begged Jim not to do this as he watched his son place the large snake around his neck as instructed. Charlie continued to beg Jim to stop, even with the snake coiled around his neck. Quote, Jim, please, it's just that the field work is, and Jim cut him off. Quote, stop your sniveling, end quote, Jim commanded. Nick turned to his father and said, quote, shut up, man, you're an embarrassment, end quote. Jim replied, quote, what's that? You ain't crying about this, are you, Nick? End quote. Nick, refusing to be seen as weak, replied, quote, hell no, father. The fucking snake's tongue scratched my cornea, end quote. <laughs> it's like a really random right. excuse. But Jim suddenly turned his own venom onto the stunned members watching all this unfold. Quote, why are all of you so quiet out there? Where's your indignation? I want you to scream out why you hate Charlie. Anyone too prissy to scream will find themselves up here with this snake when I'm done with Chucky boy, end quote. A voice from somewhere in the pavilion offered, quote, why don't we put him in the box, father, end quote. Clearly trying to help to do as he was told, this plan backfired. Jim was immediately angry, quote, because we got Jeff in there and he ain't coming out for a while. Who the hell asked that stupid question? Stan, was you sleeping in our last meeting when Jeff was dragged off to the box, end quote. The originally frail voice was even weaker now, quote, no, father, I just thought maybe he'd been taken out by now, end quote. This somehow seemed to infuriate Jim even more. Quote, what do I hear in your voice? Sorrow? Do you feel sorry for Jeff? He's an anti-revolutionary. He'd turn on you in a second if the mercenaries came in right now. He's being punished for his refusal to stop daydreaming. Don't you remember? End quote. Jim was pulled out of his tantrum by the sound of nervous laughter near Charlie. There was a puddle near Charlie and his pants were visibly wet. I assume he pissed himself from being so scared from having the snake constricting around his neck. Finally, after noticing this, Jim ordered, quote, okay, get the snake off him. His face is getting red, end quote. 
It took three guards to remove the snake from Charlie's neck. I assume he it was like squeezing. Constricting. Yeah. Yeah. Jim concluded with this lesson, quote, Now let this be a warning to all of you. You will all be tested again and again, whether it be watching to see if you are working hard in the field or by sending one of my spies out to pretend they want to leave. You better report them, because if you don't, you'll be up here too with a boa hanging from your neck and begging me for my forgiveness. That's right, even your son or daughter will be doing my bidding by testing your loyalty to the cause. Don't let me down. Report the traitors to Carolyn or me, end quote. He was clearly fucking unhinged. Yeah. Uh, Like, (laughs) what the fuck even? Because I know you're going to ask, let me explain the box. (laughs) Because the guy said, why don't we just throw him in the box? Right? Yeah. So the box was a six by four foot underground box where members would could be sentenced if they thought or did something father deemed punishable. And I did say thought or did something he deemed punishable because Jim would tell them that they needed to write down and confess their traitorous thoughts every day. Like if they had bad thoughts or whatever. And he would punish them for it sometimes. He even sentenced children to this punishment. Just for reference, I looked up the typical size of a coffin, and according to Google, standard-sized coffins typically range from 5 feet to 6 feet, six foot 8 inches long and often have a width of 24 inches, which is 2 feet or more. So imagine the box about as long as a coffin and, like, basically double as wide, like, 4 feet, you know, wide, which is fucking terrifying. Is that—yeah, okay. The man mentioned a second ago, Jeff, was kept in the box for 10 days. 10. The unfortunate souls who received this punishment were given only mush to eat and drink. Sadly, the box was not the only horrific punishment Jim Jones would dole out. There was also the well, which was used for children a lot. The poor people sentenced to the well would be taken to the well in the pitch black of night, hung upside down by a rope tied around their ankles, and dunked into the water over and over again, while another person hiding in the well would grab at them to scare them. Children. The types of offenses that would land you in the box or the well were things like stealing food from the kitchen, expressing feeling homesick, uh, failing one of Jim's socialism exams, because he would give them socialism exams every week, or just natural childhood rebelliousness. There was one last punishment that Jim liked to use, the worst of all, I think. If repeated attempts at re-education were unsuccessful and the offender continued to express unhappiness or dissatisfaction with anything in Jonestown, these offenders were sent to the medical unit or the extended care unit, where they were involuntarily drugged into a stupor where they were kept in that state indefinitely. (laughs) The fuck? Mm Mm-hmm. The threat of these punishments basically quashed any member's dissent. Often screams of the offenders or quote-unquote traitors, as Jim liked to call them, could be heard throughout the camp. However, most everyone knew better than to say anything or complain, fearing if they did, they would be the next to be thrown in the box or down the well or drugged out of their minds. If someone said they disagreed with Jim or they wanted to leave, they'd be injected with drugs and taken to a separate cabin so they couldn't speak out again. Additionally, if there were any members Jones worried might ask visitors to Jonestown for help, 
He would drug those members prior to visitors' arrival so that there wasn't a risk of the person secretly getting a message to the visitor. Anyone who complained would often be met with curses and screaming from Jim. Per recordings, at one point he said, quote, I don't know where in the hell you expect me to come up with some fucking money to have. You can't expect that to be steak for Christ's sake, end quote. I guess somebody was bitching about the food. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he was eating steak. Oh, I'm sure. Jim's cruelty in Jonestown knew no bounds. Debbie recalled a time when her mother, Lisa, and an elderly lady who worked in the kitchen named Mary were targeted by Jim. Mary created a jam from tropical fruit she had secretly gathered. Debbie had tasted the sweet concoction on a few occasions in her mother's cabin. One night, when the mood in the pavilion following dinner was light and Jim seemed happy, Mary decided to bring her creation to the podium for Jim to taste. Mary stepped up to the microphone at the podium, and Jim acknowledged her. Quote, yes, Mary, what is it you'd like to say on this gloriously calm evening? End quote. Mary replied, quote, Father, I've something here I want you to taste. End quote. Then she walked up to his chair. Jim questioned, quote, what's this? End quote. Mary explained, quote, it's a treat I've been working on, Father. Yes, sir. Lisa's been my, ta- my taster and says it's good enough to sell in the capital. End quote. Because they would, like, make stuff, mm-hmm. like, toy. They would make toys and, like, food and stuff right. and go sell it in the capital. Mary, beaming with pride, handed the orange jar to Jim, then produced a spoon from her apron for Father to taste it. Instead of using the spoon, Jim just stuck his tongue into the jar, not different from a snake. That's fucking gross. Yeah, it is. But instead of being proud of what Mary had made and praising her, Jim was angry and began screaming. Quote, what an extravagance. Where did you get the fruit to make this? End quote. Mary, who was reasonably terrified by Jim's outburst, began to back away from him and fixed her eyes on the floor. Just then, Debbie's mother, Lisa, stood up in defense of her friend and said, quote, Oh, Father, Mary's marmalade is sweet, good, and it's marketable. I think you can learn to truly enjoy it. End quote. But Jim was having none of this. Quote, Shut up, woman. I want Mary to answer from which field she stole the fruit to make this bougie bourgeois extravagance, end quote. But instead of allowing Mary to answer, Jim suddenly turned his anger towards poor Lisa. Quote, how dare you? Are you arguing with me? Are you telling father I am mistaken? End quote. Someone in the crowd anxiously yelled out, quote, father knows what's good, end quote. Another person grabbed Lisa by her shoulders in an attempt to remove her from Jim's view, hoping that if she was out of Jim's line of sight, he would let the matter go. But this is Jim. I throw temper tantrums like a toddler, Jones. So this good Samaritan's actions were in vain. Jim yelled, quiet, silence, and a hush fell over the crowd. Everyone understandably terrified as Jim stood up from his chair to glare at Lisa. Quote, Lisa, you dare to challenge me? Let this be a warning to you. You are no different from the rest of us, end quote. Obviously, this was an extreme reaction to Lisa just trying to defend her friend, so Debbie couldn't help but feel as if she had done something wrong and father was punishing Debbie's mother to hurt her. Jim often said, quote, I will punish those closest to you if you ever deceive or hurt me, end quote. Mm-hmm. Debbie immediately felt a horrible sense of guilt accompanied by dread in the pit of her stomach. This was the moment the voice Debbie had pushed down for so long started to scream in her head, quote, get out, find a way to get both of us out, end quote. Debbie used her coveted position as one of Jim's most trusted members to plot her escape. 
In the meantime, she had earned Jim's trust enough to be invited to his own private living quarters, which were surrounded by a privacy fence. Debbie immediately noticed how extravagant Jim's cabin was compared to the rest of Jonestown. For starters, his cabin included a porch where Jim could sit and relax or read. Inside, Jim had his own room with a double bed cloaked in a mosquito net with an electric floor lamp nearby. Jim also had many books, magazines, and newspapers in his cabin, amenities the rest of Jonestown did not have access to. Debbie continued looking around Jim's cabin at the luxuries he rewarded himself with, but withheld from the rest of Jonestown, despite preaching that everyone in Jonestown was equal. Jim had his own refrigerator that included things like fresh hard-boiled eggs, soft drinks, and various snack foods. Debbie also noticed medications organized neatly near the window. She couldn't help but notice her mother's medication that had been confiscated upon their arrival. Jim even had a small fan on the floor circulating air around the room. Debbie noticed that Jim's bed was covered with a soft cotton sheet and lots of pillows in various sizes. On the floor lay a throw rug and a pair of slippers that seemed to belong to Jim. What the fuck? Like, he went off on that lady for making marmalade, and his shit is, like, obviously way nicer than everybody else's. Maria, Carolyn, and Jim's youngest illegitimate sons, John, Victor, and Kimo, had a room as well, similar to Debbie's room with bunk beds. But the cabin included a private shower complete with a bench and bottles of shower gel, shampoo, and a fresh razor. There was also a single toilet versus the 16-unit toilet that the rest of Jonestown was required to use. And when I say toilet, I mean it was like like a piece of wood with a hole cut in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, like, they were all together. Like, it was like 16 all together, but they had an individual one. The biggest slap in the face to Debbie was the soft toilet paper when everyone else was required to use sheets ripped from old magazines. Oh, my God. And they were only rationed a certain amount. It's been reported that Jim told members in Jonestown that if they needed toilet paper to rip pages from their Bibles. I'm just going to let that ruminate, marinate a little bit. A preacher, a man of God, a prophet, the self-proclaimed reincarnation of Jesus Christ himself was telling people to use pages from the Bible as toilet paper? I can't. Jim Jones had a contingency plan in place should Jonestown and the People's Temple ever be attacked. Jim often held meetings he referred to as quote-unquote white knights where he would preach to the entire commune via the PA system and tell his followers that if any government invaded Jonestown, People's Temple's response would be to commit mass suicide. He convinced them it would be better if everyone committed mass suicide by ingesting poison rather than be killed by the invading enemies. Jones referred to this, to this idea as revolutionary suicide. Jones used these drills to prepare his followers for what was to come. Jones often told his congregation that when he dies, he's taking lots of people with him. In an eventual affidavit from Debbie Layton, she painted a terrifying picture of what life was like for people's temple members in Jonestown during the White Nights. Quote, at least once a week, Reverend Jones would declare a white night or state of emergency. The entire population of Jonestown would be awakened from by blaring sirens. Designated persons, approximately 50 in number, would arm themselves with rifles, move from cabin to cabin, and make certain that all members were responding. A mass meeting would ensue. 
Frequently during these crises, we would be told that the jungle was swarming with mercenaries and that death could be expected at any minute. During one white night, we were informed that our situation had become hopeless and that the only course of action open to us was mass suicide for the glory of socialism. We were told that we would be tortured by mercenaries if we were taken alive. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would, have, that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands, end quote. Debbie witnessing her mother's humiliation after being screamed at in front of everyone forced her to decide she had to get out of Jonestown no matter what. Debbie started secretly plotting her escape, but what Debbie didn't know at the time was that her eventual defection when she managed to escape Jonestown months later in May 1978 would be the catalyst for a chain reaction that would lead to the horrific events that led to the Jonestown massacre and deaths of almost 1,000 people in November 1978. When Jim reassigned her from Jonestown to the Jonestown headquarters in Guyana's capital city, Georgetown, Debbie made a vow to herself. She would escape or die trying. Debbie secretly called her sister in the U.S., being careful not to, say, not to stay on the phone too long so she couldn't be tracked. And her sister wired Debbie a plane ticket. And I think it, she picked it up at, like, the airport. Like, she just wired it to the airport. Uh-huh. In May 1978, Debbie was scheduled to meet with the U.S. Embassy on Temple Business. She snuck away from the Temple House in Georgetown and made her way to the embassy alone. She explained her situation to the men there who assisted her in obtaining an emergency passport since hers was locked up at Jonestown. That's been a question since earlier when mm-hmm. you said you took them. Yeah. After a few small hiccups in the plan, Debbie managed to board a flight back to the U.S. and breathe a sigh of relief because she was finally going home. But coupled with this relief was also grief that she wasn't able to get her mother out too. Debbie promised herself she would do everything in her power when she got back to the U.S., to bring attention to what was going on in, jo- in Jonestown so that she could get her mother and everyone else out. Deborah Layton gave a statement by way of an affidavit titled Affidavit of Deborah Layton Blakely regarding the threat and possibility of mass suicide by members of the People's Temple on June 15, 1978. Her main goal was, quote, to call to the attention of the U.S. government the existence of a situation which threatens the lives of the United States citizens living in Jonestown, Guyana. End quote. Debbie outlines her experience as a member of People's Temple in painstaking detail, but I'll only include a few quotes that hit the main points. Quote, From August 1971 until May 13, 1978, I was a member of the People's Temple. End quote. She verifies that she was in Guyana as part of the Jonestown settlement from December 1977 until her defection. She starts by giving a high-level overview of who Jim was. Quote, the Reverend Jim Jones gradually assumed a tyrannical hold over the lives of Temple members. Any disagreement with his dictates came to be regarded as treason. The Reverend Jim Jones labeled any person who left the organization a traitor and fair game. He steadfastly and convincingly maintained that the punishment for defection was death, end quote. She included the horrific conditions she experienced firsthand during her time in Jonestown. 
Debbie then ends her affidavit with an explanation for why visitors to Jonestown have never been approached by anyone there. Quote, the members appear to speak freely to American representatives, but in fact, they are drilled thoroughly prior to each visit on what questions to expect and how to respond. Members are afraid of retaliation if they speak their true feelings in public, end quote. Lastly, Debbie pleads for help. Quote, on behalf of the population of Jonestown, I urge that the United States government take adequate steps to safeguard their rights. I believe that their lives are in danger, end quote. Debbie was 100% correct. Representative Leo Ryan from California was known for going where other congressmen wouldn't. He previously investigated conditions at famed Folsom Prison by voluntarily being locked in a cell there for eight days. So in a way, Leo Ryan was the perfect person to investigate Jonestown. In fact, he was the only one who was willing to visit Jonestown and perform an inquiry. The idea of visiting Jonestown in Guyana was first discussed by Representative Ryan during the summer of 1978. Representative Ryan's interest was piqued after seeing media coverage of People's Temple member Debbie Layton Blakely's defection from the cult. Representative Ryan met with Blakely to discuss her experience in Jonestown in August 1978. So once she had that, like, put out that affidavit, news stations started picking it up. And that's how he found out. She was still in Jonestown? No, she was home. Okay. She had gotten out. But her mom was still there. The mom was still there, but Debbie had gotten out. Once word had spread to other relatives of People's Temple members, they began to contact Representative Ryan as well. Ryan sent a telegram to Jonestown on November 1st, 1978, formally notifying People's Temple and Jim Jones of his intention to visit. So that's where I'm leaving you for part four, because we'll pick up with the money shot, if you will. Uh, California Representative Leo Ryan arriving in Guyana to visit Jonestown. So Yeah, I know where this is going. What do you think so far? We're getting there. Yeah, I know. It's been like a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, for sure. This one was a lot less heavy than the last one. But I will tell you part four is going to be heavy for different reasons. No, yeah, for for sure. But so... That's part three of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. We'll Um, see y'all next week. We're almost there, guys. For the conclusion. Bye. Bye.